The views expressed here do not reflect the views of our respective employers. Hello and welcome to SpexCast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. My name is Phil and I'll be your host today alongside TJ. Hello. For the first time in a long time, we're in the same room for recording. That's a lot of fun. SpexCast is made for space fans like you. Check out daily space news and mission deep dives on our website, blog.spexcast.com, and join the space discussion on forum.spexcast.com. You can also send us a tweet at SpexCast or send an email to specscast at gmail.com. On May 24th, 2019, SpaceX launched 60 Starlink satellites into low Earth orbit. Although they are still test satellites, they are the first production model vehicles for the constellation. Now, after years of speculation, we are finally able to discuss Starlink using real facts and figures made public by SpaceX. So TJ, what is Starlink? So Starlink is satellite internet but fast so we've had a satellite broadband for many years but it's been through geostationary communication satellites the problem with that is that they're thirty-six thousand kilometers away from the surface of the earth which means even at the speed of light there's a lot of latency there's about half a second of latency to go all the way to the satellite and back not counting all the additional hops between the data center you're talking to or your game server, which means for real-time applications, video calls, VoIP, gaming, it really isn't uh, that useful. So for rural areas, when you need email and um, you know just basic internet connectivity, it's passable, but those real-time limitations prevent wider adoption. It's also a mega constellation. So... Traditional communication satellites are very relatively limited. Like the big providers like SES have a handful of satellites in predefined spots in geostationary orbit. And even uh, constellation providers like Iridium have less than 100 satellites total. So Starlink is a new kind of constellation where instead of having larger, very capable satellites that cover large service areas over Earth, they send out hundreds or thousands of satellites to cover every square mile of the Earth with smaller, cheaper, uh, but the system is overall more effective. Yeah, so Starlink is built by SpaceX. They launched the first batch of production-ready or production-like satellites into orbit on May 24th, 2019, aboard a Falcon 9. When they launched it, they released a lot of new information, new technical information, renders of the satellites themselves, and we got to see for the first time what these Starlink satellites could look like. So let's get into the design of each individual satellite in this mega constellation. Yeah, so the design's really interesting. Um, We had a general idea of what to expect with the Starlink test satellites, Tenton A and B, but what ended up happening was a rather radical redesign. So they're um, about half as massive. So the final weight is 227 kilograms, roughly 500 pounds, and they're optimized for a stacking configuration, which we'll get to later. And so they basically look like uh, a thick tabletop, very rectangular. And when they're put into a Falcon 9, they can stack dozens in a very rectangular, compact shape. Right, and to get this stacking form factor and also be capable, um, they've made some trade-offs. Uh, the first really interesting design feature or characteristic 
that surprised me was the presence of only one solar array. So on one side of the satellite, uh, folded flat on the top, is a solar array that extends out like one long sail, basically. And so this solar array has one axis of rotation, um, so it can rotate basically at its connection point with the satellite. But it also makes it a single point of failure. Uh, the common convention is to either have many solar arrays all around the satellite in fixed position, or usually two wings uh, that extend symmetrically out either side. But these Starlink satellites only have one. Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, Elon Musk posted on Twitter that this was minimizing points of failure. So instead of having to deploy two solar panels, it deploys one. But really, for most satellites, um, you need all of the energy you could provide through the solar panels. Communication satellites are broadcasting a lot of radio energy out, and so they're very power hungry. And so um, if you have a single a single solar panel and it fails to deploy, that satellite's basically gone. Yeah. You know, a larger communication satellite could provide um, disrupted or minimal service uh, if it had one or one and a half, say, a solar panel partially deployed. Because, again, their traditional communication satellites are thousands of pounds of the size of, of buses, um, and they have lots of transmitters on them. Right. Uh, another interesting problem that I'm curious to know how it's being handled by SpaceX is asymmetric torque from radiation pressure. The solar panel needs to have as much surface area exposed to the sun as it can. That's how it harvests energy. But that means that all that light is exerting some force onto that surface. And if it's only coming from one arm um, or only coming from one side of the satellite, it's making a torque which will have to be counteracted by the attitude control system. Yeah, exactly. You know, non-symmetrical designs present their own suite of challenges. So it'll be interesting to see um, whether any issues related to that pop up over the lifespan of these satellites. Again, they are production styled, um, but they are really a, just a, a larger scale test to understand wh what these satellites can do. Right. And... One of these tests will be propulsion. Every satellite is fitted with its own electric propulsion thruster, and these are Hall Effect thrusters using Krypton as a fuel. Yeah, so one of the big announcements was they're using Krypton. Whenever we talk about um, electric propulsion, we're usually talking about xenon thrusters. Xenon has a very high um, atomic mass, and when that's accelerated electrically through a thruster, it provides a high level of thrust. It's relative, relatively efficient. But xenon's very expensive, right? Xenon's not a common element on Earth. And part of this constellation, especially when considering building thousands or tens of thousands of these and then replacing them every year going forward, the cost of the gas actually, actually matters. And so they went with Krypton, which has a lower atomic weight and is actually... Um, more efficient with a specific impulse. But the thruster designs, there's actually a paper that's comparing xenon and uh, krypton in thrusters. You have to have a very high power level, which means a lot of that electrical power in the satellite has to be used to drive that thruster, which they may not have, to get good efficiencies out of it. And the overall efficiency of the fuel is less than xenon. They're not able to accelerate krypton up to the same speeds. So while its specific impulses is 
higher. It's just not as an effective fuel. So there's a lot of trade-offs, but that the big pro is cost, right? When you're trying to keep the unit cost of one satellite or 60 satellites down, not having to go to a very exotic gaseous fuel can save money. And uh, they need this electric propulsion because of the orbit they're in. It's low enough where they have to make maneuvers every so often to maintain that orbit and also uh, for collision avoidance to avoid other objects at that altitude, including other (laughs) satellites in the constellation, right? It's interesting, after these satellites have been launched, we've already seen them start to make these maneuvers, uh, which is really, really cool to see. Speaking of which, SpaceX included in their press briefing, in their marketing, that these satellites are making automated collision avoidance maneuvers. So there's no, not going to be a human in the loop to direct the satellites to move. They're going to use automated systems to know when, how far, where, which direction in order to make these uh, maneuvers. Yeah, automated collision avoidance is something that's really interesting because traditionally a satellite or even a company running several satellites, it's very manpower intensive, right? You have dozens or hundreds of people monitoring how it works and giving commands whether it's to perform an operation or to avoid uh, collisions. Um, but that quickly becomes untenable when you have a hundred or thousands, right? And so you, you can't go from 50 p- people per satellite and then have 50,000 or 500,000 people running a constellation. Of course not. And so that's when automation becomes a necessity rather than a nice to have. And it's interesting to see SpaceX, you know, come forward and say, like, you know, a big feature of our constellation is how automated it is in how we control and operate it, but also automated collision avoidance. I'd like to talk a little bit about automation in a second. But first, let's talk about specifically these automated maneuvers. We do know uh, that it integrates with the satellite tracking data from the Combined Space Operations Center, which is a government-maintained database of the locations and orbits of all satellites and satellite debris because the u.s military has a vested interest in tracking debris to protect their satellites and they make that data some of it publicly available and others uh, on a need-to-know basis to other operators because they don't want their satellites running to debris and they don't want other people's satellites running to debris which would create more debris uh and make the problem worse. And so they spend a lot of time and energy cataloging and tracking this. Uh, as a consumer, you can actually go to a website called sattrack.org, where uh, a lot of that data is available public publicly. So you can make an account, it's free, and then they have an API that lets you pull down like daily updates on where every every large satellite that's ever been launched and that's active is going, as well as a lot of debris. So if you want to track rocket stages, if you want to track Starlink satellites, uh, they publish that data. Higher resolution data or things for smaller debris, that's something that gets provided privately to these satellite operators. What I really hope in the future uh, that SpaceX releases more information on is how this autonomous infrastructure is set up. Um, So I'm not sure if how much autonomy takes place inside the satellite itself on orbit and how much is just computed, all the heavy lifting done on the ground, and then instructions are sent up uh, to the satellites when they come in contact with the ground station. But uh, in my opinion, it's not feasible for the satellites to be autonomous themselves. It makes a lot more sense to have a really robust 
system on the ground that's interpreting telemetry sent back by the satellites, making decisions, and then giving a specific instructions to each satellite as fast as possible or as fast as reasonable for, you know, given all the constraints and all the computation power. That said, having more autonomous systems on the satellite itself means it doesn't have to talk to a ground station in order to know what to do next, which can be really useful when you have to make very long duration burns and know very uh, far ahead of time when to make a maneuver because you don't have that much thrust. Exactly. Again, one of the most interesting bits of the Starlink constellation is these new operation challenges that come with operating so many satellites, yeah. right? Their first launch with 60 satellites already puts them in the ballpark of Iridium, which was the largest single constellation of larger satellites. And as these launches progress throughout this year and the next coming years, if they don't have these systems in place, they're going to rapidly run into those problems and build systems like that. So it would honestly, like, we had a, an interesting uh, technical dump after this launch about the satellites themselves, but it would honestly be more interesting to be able to get a deep dive into, like, SpaceX operations, right, and how, how that works, because they're running into challenges that very few companies have run into before. Okay, okay, enough about operations. Let's get back to satellite design. And let's talk about the business end, uh, the antenna. Yeah, so Starlink's using phased array antennas. Um, if you've seen like traditional communication satellites like Teeters, which are the NASA tracking and data relay satellites, they got these big umbrella-looking uh, radio dishes that are pointed at the Earth, and that's how they're transmitting data back and forth. SpaceX satellites are completely flat, relatively on the bottom. Um, and they're using phased array antennas, which allow them to actively steer where they're pointing. And this is useful because while they're orbiting the Earth, each satellite has a specific area that they need to broadcast in. And they don't want to overlap because that will cause interference. And there's also certain no-go areas, whether it's radio observatories or certain government agencies, etc., where they can't be broadcasting in. So what is a phase array antenna? Yeah, so a phase array antenna is an array of smaller antennas that are tied to a clock, basically. And in between each different mini antenna, there's a slight phase delay. And so when there's that tiny time delay, the waves emitted from these different antennas have constructive and destructive interference with each other. And it makes basically a net larger waveform that can propagate at an angle to the face of the array itself which means that the satellite doesn't have to steer itself with its reaction wheels. It can basically move where its eyes are looking without moving where its head is looking. And it's all through this RF physics mystery, <laughs> the RF physics RF magic. RF physics magic. No, yeah, the, the most important thing is that this is a solid state antenna. So nothing is spinning. There's no motors. There's no physical mechanisms that can wear out or get stuck. This is uh, basically a PCB pointing towards Earth that, you know, through electronic um, wizardry, electronic magic, through electronic design, is able to broadcast in different locations. Right. Can you tell me a little bit about, like, the specifics on what this antenna is doing or broadcasting? For these 60 Starlink satellites, they all have four um, phased array antennas, and we have a lot of interesting information about the radios for these satellites, the FCC application from SpaceX. 
And this was filed in 2018. And there have been modifications to this. The first level of satellites is at 550 kilometers instead of 1050 kilometers. And so when I'm going to be talking about the beam swath on the ground, those were determined for 1050 kilometers obviously it's going to be a lot smaller. So that's just the original proposal before yeah. these modifications? Yes. This technical application hasn't been updated uh, with these new orbits. So as I mentioned before, each satellite has a specific amount of Earth's surface area they should be broadcasting in. And this is roughly, for a 1,050-kilometer satellite, roughly 1,060-kilometer radius circle. So that's a quite a bit of surface area. And that is proportional to the altitude, and so the actual satellites here could be relatively smaller than that. And these satellites operate in the uh, Ka band, so they're talking about uh, gigahertz frequencies. And so there's a satellite to user downlink, and then the user terminal, which is gonna be this pizza box uh, kind of phased array antenna, is also gonna be broadcasting back up to the satellite. And these satellites also broadcast down to gateways. So we talked about the need for um, working with the constellation, a gateway would be uh, one of the ways they could communicate to those satellites. There's also a uh, tracking telemetry and command downlink, which is for more of those like turn on and off, avoid, etc. A lot of the basic uh, telemetry and, and statistics you want for monitoring satellite health, and those are at a different frequency. So the satellites are using array of frequencies to talk to the customers, which are these, these end user terminals, to talk to gateways that connect to the broader internet, and then also talk to telemetry downlinks. Yeah, so uh, with these frequencies, uh, do we know of any particular uh, places where these frequencies could interfere with things that already exist on the ground? So interference is one of the like most talked about problems with any kind of satellite constellation. Um, in the technical report, SpaceX identified a few potential possibilities for interference. Um, one thing that I always thought was interesting is that the gateways, uh, they uplink in uh, the 27.5 to 29.1 gigahertz range. And SpaceX identified that the energy coming off the side of the antenna, so the antenna is shooting upwards into space, but the energy coming off the side of the antenna could potentially interfere with mobile carriers in the area. And so that's something that they need to be careful of and make sure that they don't uh, interfere with the surroundings on Earth, which is something you don't really think about when you think of all these satellites broadcasting down. Another issue is radio observatories. So you have these radio telescopes that are looking in the gigahertz range uh, and they're in specific locations. And so SpaceX has actually reached out to these telescope agencies to come up with plans so that they can shut off these satellites when they're doing observations so those telescopes aren't affected. And lastly, the uh, United States has satellites that use the Ka band to communicate down to Earth, primarily for military applications. And so SpaceX is working with those agencies to figure out how they can work together and avoid interference. Uh, one thing that has been brought up in the media is that there's other um, Constellation competitors that are also trying to use these frequencies, specifically OneWeb. And one of the reasons SpaceX identified for lowering the constellation down to 550 kilometers to start is that they're able to uh, more accurately project their beams and avoid interference with OneWeb. 
And so interference is always an important topic to consider. It's always something to keep working towards. Uh, but in their application, SpaceX has identified these main areas, and they're working on preventing that. Uh, there's one more RF kind of application or feature to these satellites that is not present in this current launch, uh, but will be in the 100% production-ready satellites. And that's interlink communications or communications between satellites in the constellation. So the satellites uh, will employ a mix of optical intersatellite links and additional phased array radio communications to talk to each other. So uh, unfortunately, we don't have specifics about this. SpaceX is keeping it very hush-hush, but we do know that it's intended to be a part of the constellation. And honestly, is almost necessary in order to deliver uh, what Starlink is promising in terms of internet, right? Yeah, we'll get to ways SpaceX wants to like minimize latency, but inter-satellite communication is really key. Without that, you as a user have to go up to the nearest satellite and then be directed down to a gateway. And so that's a, a two-hop jump, and you're only going to be able to travel as far as that one satellite can see, right? Connected between a gateway and the user terminal. With inter-satellite communications, you can go from your user terminal and the production design should have four, which allows them to point uh, along their orbital plane to the next satellite forward, the satellite behind them, and then to two satellites off to either plane. And then they can switch between those as the satellite moves because all of these satellites are moving. And so once you have inter-satellite links, then you can go a quarter of the way halfway or all the way around the world using basically the speed of light with these optical lasers, which allows you to communicate much faster. And so it's one of those things that is kind of the secret sauce, but it's one of the challenges that they identified was figuring out ways to make these um, safe for reentry because they're putting up so many of these satellites and the chance of failure, especially for test satellites, is high. So they don't want to have lots of permanent space debris, and when these deorbit, they don't want to have a risk or a chance of in injuring someone on the ground. And the silicon carbide um, sensors that were used for establishing these lasers uh, would still survive reentry, and so they had to delay that until they could find a design for for laser detectors that would be safe for reentry. Such edge case problems that they have to deal with. I love it. Um. So we mentioned 60 satellites were launched at once. And one of the things that's actually really impressive is how that is possible. Uh, so let's talk about how these satellites stack together and are actually taken to orbit. They're flat, basically. They're little stacks of cards, and that's what it looks like inside the fairing. I've never seen a fairing more full in terms of its uh, occupied volume than this Starlink launch. Yeah, it, it was like solid satellite mass, like up to the walls of the fairing for the base all the way until where it started curving in. The total mass was around 13,000 kilograms. Yeah. So that's a, a lot of mass to be launching on a single Falcon 9. Mm -hmm. Elon Musk described it as before the launch is looking like a stack of cards being folded out in the live stream. It was very similar to that. What's interesting is that uh, when Tintin A and B launched, uh, they were riding as 
secondary payloads on a traditional satellite payload adapter, which was this large column, carbon fiber column with satellites attached to the edges, and they were deployed from the side. In this, all of that interior space is used. So there's no wasted structure. There's a bottom payload attached fitting uh, between the rocket and the first satellite, and then it's all satellites all the way to the top. Yeah, uh, that occupied space that we mentioned, like, it's all satellites. There's no deployment structure. With CubeSats, you know, they have the P-Pod, which is a little deployment mechanism that can shoot out the the CubeSat, and, but that structure stays there. With this, there was only four pieces of debris that were tracked by amateur astronomers. So it's it's really interesting. I'm not sure how the deployment mechanism works, but somehow all the satellites are connected to each other um, in a way that can be suddenly released and then they drift apart in orbit. Yeah, this is one of those things where when you are the when you have full vertical integration over what you're building, you can get away with these kind of optimizations, right? Phil, you talked about P-Pods and the CubeSat standard. The CubeSat standard is great for, for student and universities and that kind of thing because it defines the outer dimensions. But if you are building a thousand satellites, you can build your own standard that worked best for you. And that's exactly what SpaceX did. When we saw with, with Tintin A and B, the test satellites for Starlink, they had to ride share with someone else. So they had to use that adapter and they were about twice, twice the size. They had larger antennas and appendages. And so it's interesting to see that if you look at the practical considerations, which is SpaceX is the one launching these. They have a Falcon 9 with a fairing that is this size. And the Falcon 9 has a, a capability, a reusable capability of this much mass that they basically crammed as many satellites they could put in up until Falcon 9's capabilities, right? Because they're talking about needing six more of these fully packed launches to have just the bare minimum coverage and at least 12 more to have something that's reasonable. And overall, we're talking dozens and dozens and dozens of launches, right? So Falcon 9 is going to be the workhorse for this for at least the next five plus years. They had to build a satellite design that leveraged Falcon 9's capabilities. Yeah, so that's a great uh, way to talk about the Constellation design as a fully formed customer-facing product. So uh, you mentioned how many satellites are needed for initial usable service? So Elon mentioned on Twitter that it would take six more launches of 60 to have a bare minimum service. That's around 420 satellites. And for what he described as moderate coverage, an extra 12, which would be around 780 the first shell of Starlink is 1,600 satellites. So we're talking about a quarter to 50% of the satellites needed to provide some kind of service. But they want 1,600 just for this shell. And there's multiple shells on top to get to your thousands and thousands of satellites. Well, those shells you're talking about are basically additional constellations at different altitudes. Would those be using the same satellite hardware? That's something we don't know. Uh, it could be that SpaceX wants to optimize for that specific orbit, or they could want to optimize by keeping everything exactly the same and be able to churn out more and more of these. But really, uh, 
they have a an FCC obligation to get half the the half the constellation up by March 2024, and so they're really they need to get something up. They need to start getting launches. They need to work out these kinks as soon as possible. The additional um, orbital shells allow for different inclinations. So these satellites are in uh, 53 degrees uh, inclined orbit, which allows them to cover a good chunk of the Earth. But the additional um, orbits will be at 74 degrees and 81 degrees, and that allows for better coverage over the poles, right? So we talked about these satellite laser links allowing data to go around the Earth. If you're at 53 degrees, like you have to kind of zigzag to get to where you want. If you have high inclination satellites, you can actually go around the top or the bottom of the Earth, and that also reduces latency. With fewer links in between. Exactly. Different hops, different jumps with different orbital shells and stuff like that. Let's kind of dig down into latency and what that means compared to existing internet infrastructure. So yes, one of the most interesting applications for Starlink is how even though it's going up and over the Earth, it could provide lower latency internet connections than us trying to transmit signals through optical fiber on the surface of the Earth. The key component for that is that the speed of light depends on the medium in which it travels. So when we think speed of light, C, that is speed of light in a vacuum, space, but in optical fiber, it's about 40% slower. And so if you can send a signal uh, from the surface into space and then go along a relatively short path above the Earth all through space and then back down, you could theoretically send a signal faster than trying to go through optical fiber along the Earth. This opens a lot of interesting applications, specifically among uh, high-speed trading, right? In the financial markets, traders are trying to basically do arbitrage, where if they know something a few milliseconds before someone else, they can trade on that newer information. And so you actually see dedicated high-speed fiber links between major trading hubs and even microwave links just through the air uh, to connect shorter distances. And so Starlink could have very wealthy customers for this specific application. Going through the vacuum of space is only part of the story. We already mentioned that uh, geostationary satellites still have a latency of around half a second. But since these satellites in Starlink would be you know, a fraction of the altitude, there's less space to go through so they can achieve down to what, 25 to 35 milliseconds of latency, which is pretty dang good. Exactly. It all really depends on how fast switching is. And we know SpaceX has hired uh, in-house uh, routing designers to build, you know, as fast as possible switching into their satellites. And it depends on the density of the constellation, right? If you can find the most optimal path and do uh, longer jumps, right? Uh, so as, as the constellation gets more and more satellites, it really doesn't behoove you to go like a short hop. If you can go the really long hop and via laser go you know, a quarter of the way around the world and then down, you'll get the fastest gains. But it really depends on how many links a satellite has. And all of these satellites are going to be in slightly different orbits, moving uh, different different rates and different velocities from each other. And so it's, it's going to be a, definitely a very interesting challenge to achieve these ultra-low latencies. 
But even then, compared to traditional geostationary internet, it is an order of magnitude faster, right? Just based on pure physics, just how far how far away geostationary satellites are, being in low Earth orbit will win every time. Again, it gets a little bit more complicated because latency is not the only thing that matters when it comes to internet. So when I use the internet, I'm playing you know a video game, or I want to download a, a I want to watch something on YouTube. My ping to YouTube doesn't matter as much as the bandwidth, how much data, like as in terms of volume, I can get to my computer uh, over a given period of time. So do we know anything about the bandwidth uh, a customer can expect? Or I guess what makes more sense in this case, bandwidth per square mile of coverage? Yeah. So, you know, you already see that with um, mobile phone towers, right? You know, mobile phone towers use basically the same spectrum and they have a very limited uh, reach, right? So you have to be close to a mobile phone tower. Your phone talks to that. That tower has a, a hard line connection to the wider internet. And so it has a pocket of available internet you can use. But if you ever try to go to an event like a, a concert or sporting game where you have thousands or tens of thousands of mobile phones in one area, the reception and speed that everyone gets dramatically reduces, right? Because in that given service area, you have a lot of users demanding that available bandwidth. The same thing happens with geostationary satellites, right? You're so far away and your uh, spot beams on the earth will be covering millions of square miles, right? You're talking about covering whole regions or continents with one satellite. With a low earth orbit constellation, you're talking about covering like a state or a smaller area. And that's why SpaceX has a, a phase two of Starlink, which is even lower, which allows it to get even more fine-grained and more precise, to add more user bandwidth capacity so that for uh, people who are on the ground, they can all enjoy relatively high streaming bandwidth uh, without affecting the whole constellation, right? You could have you know, your 4K movie stream on like Viasat satellite, right, all the way in geostationary, but then it would only be you and like 10 of your closest friends, right? And they want to serve tens of thousands of customers. They have to uh, limit the amount of, of usage each person can use. So that's one of the advantages of having mega constellations is you get more usable bandwidth per customer by having so many more satellites with such a narrow focus. Okay, so we mentioned the radio frequencies that would be used by the ground stations in order to connect these users who want to use the internet with the satellites. Um, but let's talk a little bit more about the, the terminal itself. What do we know? So as part of this launch, we didn't get an official unveiling of the ground terminal. And so the, the rumor or the proposal and the promise for Starlink has always been this pizza box sized ground station. Um, they'll be using phased array antennas to track satellites uh, as they move across the sky. As opposed to a satellite dish that would track the satellite. Yeah, so if, if you have direct TV or satellite internet, you probably have an, a TV dish, and you probably had a technician come to your house, and they pointed the dish in a direction, yeah. and then they probably tweaked it a couple degrees because they know your latitude and longitude to point at a satellite that's relative to you fixed. Because right? it's in geostationary orbit. Yes, that satellite's not moving relative to you on the ground. And so once that satellite's there, it's locked in, it's going to be receiving that signal. For 
lower than geostationary, farther away from geostationary, those satellites move across the sky over time. And that's why you'll see uh, trackable an antennas. And if you ever looked at NASA's Deep Space Network, they have huge parabolic antennas that are on huge trusses that are tr tracking across the night sky to follow these satellites. Obviously, that's not practical for an end, end user, right? Those are very expensive. They're very big. And so phased array uh, antenna technology offers a solution. Starling satellites are going to be moving across the sky relatively quickly. The lower the altitude, the faster across the sky it will move exactly, relative to the exactly. sky. And so the big challenge is getting phased array antenna technology to be cheap enough that you can sell it to consumers or sell it to businesses. Uh, you, can, you, know, you can't sell a $10,000 antenna and then sell service on top of that at scale. Right, it's got to be under a thousand dollars. I think SpaceX has targeted around five hundred dollars as a price target, but it needs to be something that you could reasonably afford and then pay a service fee on top of. You know, I'm sure Google, if they wanted a Starlink connection to their data center, might pay ten thousand dollars for a fancy mechanically steered antenna uh, because the value it provides, or like a high speed trader might do that as well. But if you're talking about providing internet to underserved populations, they're not going to have thousands of dollars to spend just on the opportunity to then buy internet access. Right. right. And so in order for this pizza box to work, um, kind of like the, you know, dish, direct TV satellite dish, it has to have a view of the open sky in order to be able to track these satellites for the fa even for the phased array antenna in order for it to see the satellite it has to have line of sight um, but these other than that it seems like um, from you know what star what spacex has promised these ground stations could be then mounted anywhere i think a very common use case is going to be mounting them onto cell towers right instead of having a hard line to the internet you'd have this now space line to the internet and then you provide 4G or 5G to an area. I think that's definitely a, a very promising use case for underserved markets. Uh, you could theoretically put it into a plane or a boat, right? We all want faster internet on on planes, right? We'd all love to watch, be able to watch Netflix as much as we want, but we can't currently. Um, and then you'll start seeing on, you know, planes and boats and trains and and anything that provides, you know, relatively high amount of, of power. Uh, and is relatively large. Cars is going to be tough, right? Especially electric cars. Electric cars are trying to optimize every every watt away, and having a high power antenna on your roof is going to be prohibitive. But you could see it on city buses, right? Providing internet to people riding the bus every day. You could see it on potentially RVs. You could have a, a a fully internet-connected RV for traveling the country. With high-speed internet. With very high-speed internet, right? So it will. we'll see what the first terminals uh, look like, all right? It's going to be probably 12 months before anyone sees these, but hopefully they are as small and compact as uh, was promised. And so I'd like to take the ground station conversation and redirect it toward the technical aspects of the Starlink satellites as spacecraft um, and look at it when it comes to dealing with constellations of spacecraft 
on the scale of thousands or tens of thousands. <laughs> Mega constellations have been, you know, uh, conceptualized for decades. It's not a new idea. It's just never really been possible. And I think there are a few major things that Starlink operations will have to deal with in order to make this actually feasible. And they probably already have the problems figured out. But the first one is that automation is absolutely necessary in terms of basically every facet of operations at this scale, every single one. So not just, we talked about maneuvers, and that's a great case study in automating you know, different types of data coming in and interpreting it and sending it out to the satellite with instructions. That's a great case study. But everything, when it comes to, you know, a solar storm, when it comes to the satellite having a weird problem, but that problem happens on the other satellites too. We know what's going to happen. We know how to keep the satellites safe. Just turn this thing on and off. That has to be automated. There's no possible way that the human can be in the loop for that. And that ties into another thing that I think is the second major, major thing uh, that will have to happen. SpaceX and Starlink operations has to consider satellite health and safety in terms of the fleet at large. Uh, I think it's completely unreasonable for any one satellite, except maybe outside of this, you know, 60 satellites, maybe that's reasonable. But even then, at 60, I'm sure it, it would be incredibly difficult to say this particular satellite, satellite number four in the constellation, is having an issue. Let's figure that one out. You can't do that. So I think there these hopefully the design on the ground before they launch them will address all the things they can think of so that things that are addressed on orbit are only the problems that affect the entire fleet. And that's a huge task, not only for the operations in terms of satellite design, but in terms of sheer data, telemetry coming down from thousands of satellites, interpreting that. It's just a it's just bonkers. <laughs> I think this is going to be an opportunity for satellite operations to really evolve. So you can kind of look at the IT sector for kind of a blueprint of what might happen, where in the 90s and early 2000s, an IT department was dealing with, with servers, right? Physical machines that they would configure individually, that they would uh, update individually, and they would handle stuff on an individual basis. And as you got bigger and bigger, you'd scale, you'd scale out your manpower in your IT department. You might have some automation, but you're, you're still dealing with individual machines. And then when cloud computing came along with AWS and Azure and, and Google Cloud, you now we're talking about tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of machines. You no longer can talk about an individual box and you really don't care about an individual box. You're talking about a row in a data center or a whole data center or even a region. You're solving problems at the region scale rather than the individual box scale. Okay. And that involved building a lot of automated tools and new software and just coming with new processes and models to deal with computers, right? Like as a sysadmin, you're not going to be logging into an individual server in a row, in a rack, in a data center on the other side of the world anymore, right? You're going to be solving problems in at just a different scale. And that required people to evolve, to, to learn new skills, um, which I think is really interesting. And I think that's going to be the next challenge for satellite operators around the world. 
as these constellations come up because Starlink isn't the only constellation, right? There are companies with very serious plans that are, are building and launching satellites for their own constellations now. And there are other companies that are thinking about and have proposals on a similar scale to Starlink. And they're going to run into these same problems. So let's switch gears and talk about the, the impacts of having a Starlink constellation. You know, what's going to happen when this thing is fully functional? And what have we already started to see? So I think the big media frenzy after the Starlink launch was about um, flares yeah. or Starlink's visibility in the night sky. Yeah. And a lot of astronomers... Um, made a very strong statement that uh, these satellites are relatively bright in the night sky. And when you have thousands of them, they're going to outnumber visible stars or they could outnumber visible stars. Like you said, there was a lot of uh, media attention for this. And basically it was, uh, I don't know, unusual is kind of an understatement and maybe bizarre is a better term to see a video of just seeing a train of uh, many, many satellites just going across the night sky and people thinking this is only 60 when about 12,000. And this, this is definitely a problem for astronomy. Um, we mentioned radio astronomy, but also visible light astronomy because they can't see past these objects that are in front of their telescopes. But maybe delivering internet to millions or billions of underserved, of people in underserved populations with high-speed internet is a little bit bigger of a an issue to worry about then if we can have as much time looking through a telescope at a distant star? Yeah. I think a lot of the initial outcry is kind of overblown. One one bit being a lot of these images and videos you're seeing are not what you can see with the naked eye. Like in a lot of the videos shared on Twitter, it looks very, they look very bright. They look relative surrounding stars like like, oh, that, that, you know, that's going to be a huge problem. But really, those are all, um, those are all enhanced exposures, right? They're collecting more light than the human eye can see in order to make a visual image, which, don't get me wrong, is what astronomers use to take their, their photographs, right? And so from a, an individual on the ground, you're not going to be seeing thousands of dots whizzing around the sky every day. Also, one thing to keep in mind is that these, or these, Satellites were put into a 450-kilometer orbit to begin with, and they're climbing up to 550 kilometers, which means that they're going to get dimmer, right? Their apparent magnitude is going to be reduced as that light gets shown over a larger part of the Earth's surface. So they're going to get dimmer just because they're not ready to go yet. But Elon Musk responded on Twitter to um, these concerns and said that the SpaceX team is working on lowering albedo and i think that's something that's totally totally reasonable and totally something that should be worked on right you know you don't paint it white if you don't really have to right so there are there are improvements to the satellite technology itself to reduce this impact but it's going to be interesting i do agree with phil like the value of having this constellation is going to outweigh the uh, impact and I, I do think that there are ways and processes that astronomers can use to minimize the impact of this. And so any panic that this is going to ruin all astronomy and ruin the night sky for everyone is, I think, is overblown. I think it is an issue that smart engineers and smart scientists can work together to minimize the impact of. 
but it it definitely shouldn't stop building this um this infrastructure that's going to help so many people one you know another side of the argument is that building significant space infrastructure and building ways to profit off space at this next scale this next jump in scale will eventually enable more structures in space and more services in space which would allow for more space telescopes right right now it costs so much more to put up a space telescope that just the volume of observations has to be done on the ground and we have to devise ways of getting around the um, interference of the earth's atmosphere and other other downsides just because the cost is so much higher but if we build ways to put up twice as many or 10 times as many space telescopes we will be able to recoup that science, right? So that is that is a couple chain links down down the road. Um, so that's definitely not a solution. Like no astronomer today would say, "Oh, just use a space telescope," right? You know, because that's just not practical. Like they have telescopes now, but thinking long term, it's not going to be the end of the astronomical world. I don't think. So there are a number of different competitors that want to deliver satellite internet. The major issue to overcome is that these different companies want to use similar frequencies to interface with their satellites and their customers. Yeah, that's definitely a big challenge. It's every constellation wants to use similar frequencies and terrestrial providers mobile providers and 5g want to use similar frequencies too so there's a huge clash of who gets what when there's only a limited part of the spectrum that is really practical to use for this application as well exactly exactly if you want to have like high bandwidth provided to the end user right older constellations are providing slower service using different frequencies but these high frequencies these gigahertz band frequencies uh, are limited an interesting consideration is one of SpaceX's earlier customers, Iridium. So Iridium just put up their new constellation called Iridium Next, and they launched the majority of those satellites on SpaceX vehicles. And so now one could take the perspective that SpaceX is kind of uh, stabbing a buddy in the back by competing with them with Starlink. One thing to consider is that Iridium and Starlink are not direct competitors, right? They're both communication satellite services, but Iridium is talking directly to handsets, right? They are powering satellite phones, right? An individual, consu- not consumer electronic, but an individual handheld electronic that lets you do voice and data. When Starlink is going to be it's a larger base station that's not going to be something a person carries, that then will provide internet access through some other rebroadcast. Similar means for a different use case, basically, right? A different... A different customer, a different... Exactly, completely different customer bases. Like, you're going to have someone who's going to want a satellite phone when they go backpacking through the wilderness versus someone who wants high-speed internet to their town, right, that's in, like, rural Kansas. And so just completely different segments of the market. And so I don't consider, I don't think there's going to be a lot of um, tension there between these two companies. And Iridium, you know, they put up, they were using the original constellation for 20 plus years. They have their new constellation which will last a significant amount of time. I think that partnership was both beneficial to both parties, and I don't think there's a lot of tension between them. 
maybe a better direct competitor. And a pretty well-known name at this point is OneWeb. Yes. OneWeb is, is very interesting. They launched their first six satellites in February. Um, and those are production satellites? Production satellites. And they've also uh, built their own satellite factory where they're going to be producing you know, relatively large quantities of these. They're launching several hundred for their entire constellation. And that is a, a competitor with a lot of tension. If you look back, SpaceX and OneWeb were supposed to be partners where, where OneWeb would build the satellites and SpaceX would, would launch them. Uh, and there was a falling out between um, the founder of OneWeb and Elon Musk, and SpaceX decided to just directly compete with that idea. Now, SpaceX, their constellation is probably a step or two above in scale. Uh, they're really going all in on this idea of, of high-volume satellites to provide internet access. But like that is a, a very heated competition because I think there might be a first-to-market advantage or really a once people have global coverage, which these satellites... These satellites really don't have regional coverage, right? They, they have their, their orbital inclination, and then they'll just provide um, time of service, right? So it goes from providing it every once a day to, to once every hour to once every minute to consistently, and then you can provide service to the entire world with that mechanism. And so uh, once someone has something working and they can start selling subscriptions and, and starting locking in people... I think you know it's going to be very it's going to be a very intense race between these two companies. Yeah, and it's kind of cool too. Like you said, it's it's not really incremental. It's kind of infrastructure building and building and building, and then all of a sudden, global coverage. Exactly, and that's one of the the huge challenges of this, right? It's extremely capital intensive. You have to build a huge number of satellites and. For a chunk of their first lives, they can't really be productive. They're not going to be producing revenue until the constellation is ready. And then you got to pay for the launches. And that's where SpaceX has an advantage where they can pay themselves for launches, right? Versus OneWeb, which is working with Arian Space and launching on Soyuz rockets um, to build up their constellation. I think another competitor uh, that's worth a mention is Astronus. They're a small tech company um, who aiming to put small sats in geo to provide, uh, they say 7.5 gigabit per second throughput at, under KA band to different regions. Um, they've already pre-sold some contracts, and I don't think they've launched any satellites yet. Um, but it's it's not the mega constellation. It's the old architecture of putting a satellite in geo using modern techniques, modern technologies, using small sats. Um, so I think it's that might be a competitor, um, but maybe they'll get some uh, some of the market before Starlink and OneWeb are ready to serve the whole globe, and they'll get in maybe first or particular regions that need it um, that are more remote, like Anchorage, Alaska, for example. Uh, so lastly, and part of this infrastructure and a pretty significant piece of the puzzle is how do existing internet service providers fit into this? concept of having satellite high-speed satellite internet i think a lot of people are under the perception that once spacex finishes starlink to a certain degree that they'll be able to ditch compactcast and then buy starlink internet and get one of these boxes on their house and, and be set up and i think maybe 
Some people might have that luxury. But a thing to understand is that even with the phase two of the constellation with 12,000 satellites and, and having very narrow coverage areas, that urban areas, especially the big cities where millions of people live, there just won't be enough available bandwidth, right? Think about if everyone in New York City used 4G or 5G to power their home internet, right? That's a lot of people. There's only so many cell sites. It's not going to be a good experience. Starlink would be an order of magnitude worse, right? And so for dense urban areas, you're never going to be able to use this service, even if it exceeds everyone's wildest hopes and dreams with regards to the number of satellites. But the, where the really big impact comes from is in rural areas, large open areas with very few users, which means each user can have really fast speeds, like up to a gigabit per ground station. Yeah. But even then, it might be something where a town gets a cell tower with a Starlink backend, right? And so the 500 people in the town now have super fast 4G or 5G internet when before they had nothing. Um, they might have been using dial-up. And then the other kind of individual customer are going to be people in, in wealthier nations. And like, you know, they have a very remote cabin in the mountains. They might be able to get Starlink and then they can work remote, right? If they're doing a, a job where they can do that remotely over the Internet, now they can live away from pretty much everyone else, uh, but still have access to the global Internet community through that way. But the main... Uh, market for this is going to be underserved populations. And so uh, astronaut Chris Hadfield recently posted on Twitter a graph showing the number of people uh, worldwide by country that have access to high-speed internet. And that's defined not in, you know, a gigabit, not fiber-level internet, but like 250 kilobits per second. So like right, like faster than dial-up is considered high-speed. Um and not a single country has over 70% coverage. South Korea is, is leading in that. Uh, and especially like big countries like the U.S. and Canada, because you have so much open space. There's so many people who are here who are underserved within that. And in poorer countries, it's closer to, to 0%, right? Very, very, very few people have access to any internet at all, let alone high speed. And when we're talking about high speed, you try to go to Facebook, you try to go to a modern website, you know, it's just not going to be a good experience, not be a usable experience. And so to have the opportunity to give, you know, several billion people access to like reasonable internet speeds is going to be a game changer. We've already seen with mobile phones, with, with Android phones specifically, the race to the bottom in price where you can get very cheap uh, handsets, right? Under $50. I'm sure there are, are used devices that are even cheaper than that that have a huge amount of computing power relative to what these people might have already. And those have cellular radios, Wi-Fi radios. If you can link those to a Starlink backlink, suddenly a whole village of people can have rich internet access, right? Um, and that does not involve sending a crew to dig a fiber line and spend six months in in areas that just don't have the infrastructure to support that kind of construction, right? This is something that can be deployed. Maybe it's powered with solar. Maybe it's powered with the local grid if it's available and then provide that global internet access, which I think is really powerful. Yeah. 
All right, that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to get future ones on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whichever podcast app you use. And you can check out our huge backlog of past episodes and blog posts, including interviews with key people in the space industry, in-depth articles on spacecrafts and rockets, and commentaries on recent events in the space industry at our website, blog.specscast.com. Also, be sure to let us know what you think of the show. Leave a review on your podcast service of choice or reach out to us on Twitter at SpexCast or send an email to SpexCast at gmail.com. Our music is by Nelson Scott.